Please stand for the reading of today's gospel lesson from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. If you were able to join us last Sunday for Easter, you know that we had an amazing celebration. We had well over 4,000 people here on our campus worshiping together. We had many online, like those of you who are joining us this morning. And I just want to celebrate and thank everyone who made it possible. To those of you who invited friends, family members, coworkers to join us for worship. To those of you who parked far away or who moved services to help make it happen. To those in hospitality. And particularly for our choir and our worship arts team that worked so hard during the season of Lent. Can we give a, a round of applause for everyone who helped make it happen? It was an amazing day. And then when you come to worship the Sunday after Easter, it's always a little interesting because the lilies are gone and the platform up here is looking a little bit bare. There's no balloon arches like we had last week. The balloons have blown away and everything's been packed up. Lunch plans aren't as exciting. I think I'm having leftovers or whatever I can scrounge up. The kids' candy stash is gone. And quite honestly, you're not dressed as well as you were last week. (laughs) Sometimes it can be a little bit of a letdown. Maybe you got here early this morning thinking you got to get here early so that you can get a parking spot and make sure there's a seat for you in worship. Or maybe you looked in the bulletin and you saw Davis's name was absent and that there was an associate pastor and you thought, could have slept in and watched online today. (laughs) There's a lot of different emotions on today. There's less excitement and anticipation. There's a little more worry about Monday morning and what's coming up in our life together. But I think actually... The Sunday after Easter and our worship together is a little bit more like that first Easter than our big celebrations last week. Because the first Easter, they weren't having huge parties. They weren't having huge cookouts. The disciples weren't strutting around in seersucker all over Jerusalem with happy faces celebrating what had been done. Instead, John tells us that, that there was fear and there was joy. There was belief and there was doubt. And from our text this morning, it also seems like there was at least one person who felt a little bit let down that first Easter. Take a moment and put yourself in the shoes of Mary Magdalene. Early in the morning on the first day of the week, she goes to the tomb and finds Jesus' body isn't there. And so her grief is compounded and she begins, begins weeping She begins weeping, but then suddenly Jesus 
finds her and he turns her weeping into joy. And then Jesus, he, he says two things to her. He says, one, uh, let go of me. Maybe she was hugging on to him a little bit too tightly after she saw him unexpectedly. And number two, he said, go and tell the disciples the good news that I have risen from the grave. And so Mary was obedient. She went, she let go of Jesus and she went and she said to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. But it doesn't exactly seem like they fully believed her. I mean, maybe the disciples said something like, Mary, you know what? You cry a lot like you were crying this morning. Maybe you're a little emotional right now and, and you're just seeing things, but, but maybe this didn't really happen. Or perhaps they had a little bit of hope mixed with their skepticism and doubt. And so they, they asked, well, where is he now? What did he look like? Why hasn't he come here to us? Or maybe they were just confused because you have to understand, they weren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. And so this whole business of a dead person coming back to life, I'm sure they had a lot of questions. And in the midst of their questions, I'm sure Mary felt a little bit let down. But in the midst of what she was feeling, in the midst of their doubt, their skepticism and their fear as they are huddled together on the evening of the first day of the week, afraid that those who conspired against Jesus are soon going to conspire against them. It's in the midst of that scene that Jesus seeks them out and shows up. Now, I'm probably the only person in the room who does this the week after Easter, and that's okay. But the week after Easter, one of the things I do is I, I get on the podcast and I listen to sermons from preachers all over the country, Easter sermons, because I love to hear how different pastors, some of my, my favorite preachers tell the old, old story once again. And one of them I listened to this week is a man named Glenn Packiam who pastors out in California. And he was actually reflecting on this passage and, and he said something I thought was significant. He says, notice that Jesus doesn't show up in the midst of a prayer meeting as they're praying for, for Jesus to come and to meet them. Notice that Jesus doesn't show up because of their big and bold faith. He doesn't show up in response to their confidence that he's risen from the grave. Instead, Jesus takes the initiative and he seeks them out and he meets them in the midst of their doubt and in the midst of their fear. And then he went on to say this. He went on to say, Jesus, even today, has a way of slipping past our defenses and pretenses and meeting us right where we are. And I don't know about for you, but for me, that's good news. Because that means that we don't have to have our lives cleaned up before Christ comes to us. We don't have to have big and bold Easter faith because maybe even after last Sunday, you still have a lot of questions about Christianity and Jesus. This is good news because just like Jesus met the disciples when they didn't have the answer to every question, Jesus comes to us and he proclaims peace over us even before we have the answer to every question as well. And this passage of this morning and the other resurrection appearances, they raise a lot of questions like, number one, how does someone pass through locked doors? Number two, why does Jesus, when he's raised from the dead, why does he still have scars? Or how does this even work that a dead person comes back to life? I mean, there's a lot of questions going on in this passage and the other passages. And John and the other gospel writers, 
they don't seek to give us clear answers to everything, but what they, they do give us is a picture that Jesus is more than some kind of spiritual illusion or figment of their imagination. What we discover is that Jesus has flesh and bones, scars, and in some accounts, he even eats with the disciples. We find that his body is the same, yet it's different. And that he hasn't merely been resuscitated from the dead, but instead something has happened, something the scripture writers call resurrection. And Paul, when he's reflecting on the nature of Christ's resurrected body and our future resurrection, he says this, that the resurrected body is imperishable, glorious, and powerful. Thomas Aquinas says it's of the same nature, but of a different glory. And so that first Easter in the evening when they, when they had fear, when Jesus met them, the disciples, they didn't fully understand what was happening. They didn't have the answers to all of their questions. But when Jesus showed them his wounds and declared peace over them and they recognized him, their fear turned to joy. And they believed. And my guess is that as Jesus said not once but twice, peace be with you, their minds went back to that final supper they had with Jesus. When he said a lot of things that they didn't understand at the time, but now were becoming clear, like when Jesus said, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again. And you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. The resurrection revealed to the disciples that Jesus could be fully trusted. That all of his teachings had been vindicated and that what he had done for them and for the world had changed everything. But in these first moments after the resurrection, Jesus, he doesn't spend a lot of time looking back to the past and what he had done for them. Instead, he points them to the future. And he begins to tell them about what now they are going to do. And so in John chapter 20, verse one, he says this. He says, as the father has sent me, I am sending you. He lets them know that this isn't the end of the story. This is actually just the beginning of the next chapter. And while this, this mission, in a sense, that Jesus gives to the disciples is succinct, the disciples knew that it was significant. Because when they heard Jesus saying, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you, they would have heard, as the Father sent me to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand, I'm sending you to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. As the Father sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, Good news to the poor, I'm sending you. They would have heard Jesus saying, as the Father sent me to feed the hungry, to push back against darkness and to fight injustice, I am sending you, as the Father sent me to lay down my very life out of love for the sake of others, I'm sending you to lay down your life, as the Father sent me to proclaim the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life, I am sending you. And the disciples, thankfully, were obedient like Mary Magdalene. They were obedient and they began to live out this mission. 
And so when we look in the book of Acts, we find the disciples being sent all over. We find people like Ananias being sent to Saul on the Damascus road and helping him recover his sight and helping him encounter the Holy Spirit. We see people like Philip sent down a deserted road to encounter an Ethiopian eunuch to open up the scriptures for him and to baptize him. We find Paul and Barnabas being sent on missionary journeys all over the region to help establish churches. And those churches began to grow. They began to grow. In 40 AD, it's estimated there were 5,000 disciples. By 300 AD, there were over 5 million disciples. And Alan Kreider, in his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, he begins to explain how the church continued to grow so rapidly after these early missionary journeys. And he says the answer is this. Ordinary Christians, they were the key. Lay Christians traveled to new areas and established churches. And what caused ordinary Christians to get involved in this? Often it was work. Christians followed their business opportunities or the imperatives of their jobs by moving from their home areas to new areas as merchants, artisans, doctors, prisoners, slaves, and soldiers, taking their faith with them in new places they founded Christian cells. And these Christian cells or house churches, as we might think of them today, they, they grew. They grew as people witnessed the life of the early church together, their behavior, their character, their love for God and their love for one another. And these early Christians, they didn't have any kind of exceptional theological education. Instead, they simply believed that wherever they went in life, God was sending them to spread the good news of salvation to every person they encountered. And what I want you to see this morning is that as Easter people, as disciples today, we too are sent. Jesus, the one with nail-scarred hands, continues to seek us out and send us out to spread good news with our words and with our actions all over. In a sense, Jesus calls us to be missionaries in our ordinary, sometimes boring, everyday lives. I want to do a show of hands real quick. How many of you have ever been on a short-term mission trip, maybe abroad or maybe disaster relief in our community? How many of you have ever been on a short-term mission trip? Would you raise your hand? I've been on many trips. I've, I've led many trips. And if you talk to people who raise their hands, one of the things they'll often tell you is that these experiences are transformational spiritually for them. And I think that's because of a few reasons. I think, one, when you go on a mission trip, you, you have a clear mission. Your mission is not to serve yourself and your own self-interest. Instead, it's to serve other people. Another thing that happens is a lot of times when you're on a mission trip, you go as part of a community of people. And your eyes are, are open your eyes are open to needs around you in a way that they aren't usually in your everyday life. And your, your heart is a little softer for people. Your hands are willing to serve. You're more interruptible when you're on these types of trips. 
And what happens is on the final night of the trip, when everybody's doing reflections on what it was like, people say, wow, I saw God at work in so many different ways. And it was amazing to be a part of God's work in the world and for God to work in me and through me. Do you see what I'm getting at? Jesus doesn't just send us to far off places. He doesn't just send us on special trips, although those, those are great things. Jesus also sends us out into our workplaces each day. Jesus is sending you to your retirement community. Jesus sends you to your school. Jesus has sent you into your neighborhood to be his hands and his feet and to share the good news of Christ with everyone you meet. Jesus is sending us. And when I think about this profound yet simple truth, I think about the people that Jesus has sent into my life over the years. And one of the people that I'm eternally grateful for is a man named Don. And I met Don when I was in the sixth grade in what many people called my Dennis the Menace phase of life. Here I am. <laughs> I was the youngest of three boys. I usually got what I wanted through tears, whining, and any other means necessary. And I, I, I was a, a bit much to put up with. We can take down the picture now. <laughs> and I met Don when I was in the sixth grade because I joined the youth group at my home church. And Don was there. Don was there pretty much every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. And he seemed to chaperone every trip that we went on. And Don didn't have a theological education. He didn't have any youth ministry training. He didn't have a lot of experience with students. But what Don did have is availability. He had a heart that was open to other people, people like me. And Don also had scars. He had scars from his recent divorce. He had scars from his time in the military. Don had scars from the years that he had strayed far from Christ. But Christ had met him and redeemed those scars and he was willing to share them in the good news of Christ with us right where we were on ordinary Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, week after week after week. And Don taught me and so many others many things, but two of the things he taught me I'll never forget. Number one is to live with a sense of expectation. He would often tell us that every day he woke up, he woke up in our town, Conyers, Georgia, where we felt like nothing much was happening. And he would pray, he would pray, God, would you use me today? Would you send me into someone's path? Would you send someone into my path? Would you help me see a need and help me meet a need? And he would say, you know what? When he lived with that sense of expectation and he prayed for God to use him, guess what? He felt like God used him. And he was able to see God at work and in our world and in our community. But he also said, you know what? When he didn't expect God to do much and he didn't expect God to use him, it didn't feel like much happened. He also taught me something else. 
He taught me that on my own power and in my own strength, I can't do much. But with the power of God at work in us, he taught us that anything was possible. And just after Jesus gives the disciples this commission, he says this, John 20, 22. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He sends the Spirit to empower them for the mission ahead. John Calvin says that this is a sprinkling of the Spirit before the saturation of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the Spirit that Jesus sent, he breathed onto these disciples is the same Spirit that empowered him to preach boldly to perform miracles. It's the same spirit that enabled him to lay down his life out of love for everyone in this world. And Paul tells us that it's the same spirit, the spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. He said, it's the same spirit that lives in you and in me today. It's this spirit that empowers us as we go out to be the hands and feet of Jesus into our ordinary, sometimes boring, everyday lives. As a poem attributed to St. Teresa of Avila puts it, Church, Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth, but yours. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.